Welcome to Kids Considered, where two pediatricians discuss children's health topics of interest to parents in a podcast with new subjects considered every episode. I'm Dr. Lena Vanderlist. And I'm Dr. Dean Blumberg. And we're both pediatricians at UC Davis Children's Hospital in Sacramento, California. Let's hear about this episode's topic. six-month-old boy, I am nervous to start giving him solids because I have such bad food allergies uh, myself. Um, What is the likelihood he will also have food allergies? Uh, Anything I can do to decrease his risk? Oh my gosh, this question is amazing because in the pediatric clinic, I feel like I get questions about food allergies or really just allergies in general all the time. Mm-hmm. And this is complicated issue because I've been thinking that we should do a podcast on food allergies, except it was so intimidating to me to address. So I'm glad that Dr. Lena has taken the lead <laughs> with this and we can go through some of the misconceptions and recommendations regarding food allergies. Absolutely. It is a challenging topic, but we will try and break it down for you today. So, Dr. Dean, I'm wondering how common you think food allergies are. Well, I'm not exactly sure, of course, but I'm thinking like 1% or 2% of kids, maybe. It can't be that common, can it? Well, it's actually a little bit more common than that. So a true food allergy affects somewhere between 4 and 8% of children. And, you know, some of them grow out of it as they age, so it affects a little bit less percentage of adults, so 2 to 5% of adults. Mm-hmm. And they've been increasing over time, right? Is there data that shows that they've been increasing Yeah, there actually is data to say that there's been a significant increase in food allergy over the last 10 years or so. So one study showed an increase in food allergy visits to the emergency room or the doctor's office that increased from 5% in 2007 to 22% in 2016. So we really are seeing an increase in these visits. That seems like a huge increase. Do you have, have you heard of ideas why this is happening? Yeah, nobody knows for sure, but there are a few theories. So it's probably a combination of all of these different theories together is what people think. One theory is called the hygiene hypothesis, which I think is kind of funny. And it's basically saying since our environment has become cleaner over the years, you know, we're disinfecting everything or keeping kids out of, you know, those little balls at McDonald's, (laughs) (laughs) all of those other things. Kids' immune systems aren't as distracted by responding to frequent infections. And so instead of responding to those infections, they may respond by developing new allergies instead. So that's one of the hypotheses. Another is that there's this theory that exposure to food proteins through the skin, like especially in kids that have dry skin like eczema, and we'll talk more about this, you can get sensitized to that allergen, and then it can cause a response later when they eat it. Hmm. And the last one, the last possibility is that there really was a change in infant feeding guidelines um, many years ago recommending that we delay the introduction of these historically allergenic foods. And we'll talk more about why that was maybe not the best idea. And so not having those foods in in the diet early may have also contributed to the rise of allergies. So it's interesting that over time, we see that we make these recommendations that may have been completely wrong and (laughs) and have to readdress them. Yeah, I have to walk it back a little bit. Uh So there's some risk factors for developing food allergies that we should talk about. And these include 
the increased levels of food allergies in certain groups such as Asian, Hispanic, and Black children, and genetic factors, which include a history of allergies, asthma, or eczema in the patient or their immediate family. And then finally, delaying peanut introduction in high-risk patients puts them at even greater risk of food allergies. Mm-hmm. So those are some of the risk factors. And, you know, I think one of the most important things to discuss before we get into our discussion on true food allergies is to differentiate for all of the listeners a true food allergy versus a food intolerance. So I think that many of the parents that come into my office wondering about food allergy is are actually complaining of a food intolerance. Um, so 35% of patients and parents report a food reactivity or intolerance, which they believe is a true food allergy, but it's not a true food allergy. So in kids, we see this to milk, fruits, vegetables. They may come in with some GI symptoms like they have nausea or some diarrhea. We also pretty commonly see pseudo-allergic reactions, and that's like this classic rash around the mouth, but no other symptoms. And that can be from like citrus fruits and irritation or strawberries, cherries, tomatoes. And so, of course, you should always come in and discuss these symptoms with your physician, but they may not actually be true food allergies. So that around the mouth, that irritation, that's like a direct irritation from the like the acid or something. Right. Exactly. The more acidic foods, mostly. Hmm, Interesting. So a true food allergy is an IgE-mediated response that occurs reproducibly with exposure to a certain food. Right. And to understand how this happens, I've been really into this mini medical school where we (laughs) go back and talk about, because what the heck is IgE? So IgE is an antibody. So after a child's first exposure to an allergen or anyone's first exposure to an allergen, we undergo a process called sensitization. So in this process, your body creates an IgE antibody, um, which stands for immunoglobulin E, and it's specific to that thing you're allergic to. That unique antibody then goes and it sits on top of your immune cells. So some of those cells are mast cells and basophils, and it basically is just there. It's like waiting. It's like a little army ready to dispatch when it sees the enemy. And so after you see that allergy again in the future, that IgE recognizes it and it kind of like disarms and it triggers those cells to release all of their chemicals. And then that is what gets you those typical side effects of an allergic reaction, the, the nausea, the, the itchy, the rash, all of that stuff. A little army. That's that's funny. You know, when you were describing it, I was I was thinking about how really it is triggered. It's almost like a landmine or something that you like right. step on it and it just like explodes, and yes. it, it's scary. It, <laughs> it can, can be, be scary. really scary. Yes. Yeah. So because sensitization is needed, then a kid can't have an allergic reaction the very first time they're exposed to food because they first have to make the antibodies, right? In the vast majority of cases, this is true. Um, There are some foods, like peanuts are the most common, um, where you can see a reaction on the initial exposure. And that is most likely because they've already been sensitized somehow. So through their skin, um, like we talked about with dry skin, or then there's there's this interesting um, allergy called food pollen syndrome. Have you heard of it? 
I have not heard of that. What is <laughs> what is food pollen syndrome? So this is really interesting to me, at least, because some food allergens are very similar in structure to environmental allergens, like grasses, trees, weeds. So if a kid, let's say, was exposed to ragweed pollen and then became sensitized to this, there can be food proteins Um, And specifically in this case of ragweed, it's like melons, like cantaloupe or watermelon that exhibit similar structure. And so they can get symptoms when consuming that that food um, just by being exposed to that environmental allergen. But these reactions in food pollen syndrome are not usually like the big, scary anaphylaxis. They're usually more limited to like an itchy mouth maybe – Um, mild swelling, but it it rarely progresses. And usually we see this when kids get older because they don't start developing outdoor allergies until they're closer to four or four to six years old. Mm -hmm. So that's a really interesting thing that I learned more about during um, researching for this episode. Yeah, that is interesting. So what are the most common foods that do cause a true IgE-mediated food allergy? So the most common allergens in kids and adults really are milk, egg, peanut, tree nut, fish, shellfish, wheat, soy. So those are going to make up 90% of your food allergies. Yeah, I'm surprised that strawberries aren't on the list because it seems like that's one that parents are commonly concerned about. Yeah, and it may be because they had that pseudo-allergic reaction. Oh, that explains it. But, I mean, not always. I mean, of course, you can have a true allergy as well, but they may have had a mischaracterized diagnosis because of the Mm pseudo-reaction. It looked like an allergy, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say a parent gives their kids some eggs in the morning, and they notice that they break out in a rash immediately afterwards, so they schedule an appointment to come to see you. And what kind of questions will you be asking the parent? Yeah. So with food allergy, history is everything. So we want to ask what foods they were exposed to. So if um, bringing in an ingredient list, so an an egg is a little bit simple, right? Because that's just egg. But um, Mm -hmm. for example, I had a kid the other day that had tried a new form of pesto. And so mom said, we always eat pesto, but we always eat the, the Trader Joe's brand pesto. And so she brought in the two pestos and You know, sure enough, the Trader Joe's has like cashews in it. And then the one that they had tried had pine nuts in it. So Hmm. like there can be subtle differences. So bringing in an ingredient list can be really helpful. We'll also ask how the food was prepared. So was it a um, over easy egg or was it a scrambled egg or was it baked into a a cake? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So we want to know about that. We want to know how many times you feel like your child has had that food before um, and if there was any differences. And then the child's own medical history, your family history of allergies. And one of the most important things is the details about timing from the time they ingested the food until the start of the reaction. Mm -hmm. And timing is important because true allergic reactions usually occur within minutes, maybe to hours, but usually within minutes of ingesting the food. And they rarely occur greater than two hours from the exposure. What are the most typical presenting symptoms of a food allergy? I typically think of like dramatic Severe allergic reaction, like anaphylaxis, the tongue swelling, the difficulty breathing, the wheezing, the hives. While anaphylaxis is the most severe presentation, it's definitely not the most common in kids, which is great. So more commonly, we're going to see skin findings. So we're going to see those big kind of wheels, what we call urticaria. 
They're big, splotchy red. And usually, like, if you circle one, it will not be there. It'll go away, and then it'll appear somewhere else. Um, They can have itching, some swelling. For the GI tract, we can see mouth itching, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, Um, respiratory, you can see some wheezing and shortness of breath. And then in the most, most severe cases, you can see lowering of the blood pressure, what we call hypotension or even fainting. That would be in a true anaphylaxis situation. That would be very scary to see. I mean, as a medical professional, that would be scary to see. I can't imagine as a parent what that would be like to see your kid faint as a result of an allergy. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So family history is also really important, and we mentioned that there's genetic predisposition for allergies. If the child has a so-called atopic triad of asthma, eczema, or other allergies, or has a very strong family history of allergies. So let's say I see that kid, the egg kid in my office, and the history fits with a food allergy. So what's next? Um, What are the recommendations for testing strategies to confirm that it is truly a food allergy? Well, as you mentioned, the history of the events is really the main diagnostic tool. But in addition, your physician can perform a blood test that looks for the specific IgE to the food of concern. Or they can do a skin prick test where they introduce that allergic food to the skin and see if it creates an immediate response. And we usually recommend waiting four to six weeks from the initial reaction to do the testing so that the response is strong enough. We do not recommend sending panel testing, for example, a whole panel that includes the 20 most allergenic foods. And you know, we, we want to test for the specific foods of concern. Right. And I'm really glad you mentioned that because unfortunately, these panel tests are pretty commonly ordered in the primary care setting. You know, I see them a lot and they really give us a really high chance of having a false positive. And so what that means is that the level may be elevated, the specific IgE level may be elevated on a food, even if your child does not have a true allergy, has never had a reaction to that food. They've just been sensitized, like we mentioned before. And so just because you've been sensitized to a food does not mean you're going to have an allergy to that food. But of course, as a family member, you see that, oh my gosh, the IgE is so elevated for peanuts. I'm just going to avoid giving my kid that because I'm fearful that they're going to have a reaction. This is reasonable. But the science actually shows that with by withholding that food— Um, to someone who is already sensitized but not reactive or not allergic, you actually may be promoting a food allergy. So that's why it's important only, only to test for um, blood, do blood tests for foods that a kid has a reaction to. Yeah, otherwise you get that result and you just end up worrying and maybe (laughs) creating problems where none exist. Yeah. So I think this is a good time to talk about the early introduction of allergenic foods and when to do that and how to do that and how that actually might help prevent food allergies. Yes, this was a really landmark study that's talked about in pediatrics all the time. It's called the LEAP study, Learning Early About Peanut Allergy. Um, And it was completed in 2015. And it showed that early introduction of peanuts to children starting between 4 and 11 months of age was beneficial. Um, In patients who ingested peanut products three times per week, the prevalence of peanut allergy decreased from nearly 14% to 2% by five years of age. That's a pretty dramatic decrease. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is really dramatic. And, you know, of course, I want to – you're not giving your kid peanuts, right, because that's a choking 
hazard. So okay. there's um, smooth peanut butter that's mixed in formula or breast milk or, um, you know, there, now there's peanut powders or other things like that that are safe for infants. Mm-hmm. But recommending early peanut introduction isn't for everybody, right? That's absolutely true. So at least not on doing it on their own at home. So if your child has a history of severe eczema or egg allergy or both of these, you really want to talk to your pediatrician before starting to introduce these th- peanut products early. Um, we will then perform allergy testing to peanuts. And depending on the results of that test, we'll either say you're good to go, go ahead and introduce it at home. Or that we may recommend that you see an allergy specialist and continue to avoid peanuts until you do that. Mm -hmm. So if your child is diagnosed with a specific food allergy, then the hallmark of treatment is strict avoidance of the food. Recent evidence does encourage continued ingestion of tolerated forms of food for some children who have already been evaluated. And so one example is if a child has been fine eating eggs when baked into cakes but not scrambled egg, they can continue to eat egg baked into products such as cakes. Mm-hmm. Your pediatrician may prescribe an EpiPen, and the appropriate dose of the EpiPen changes depending on your child's weight. So you definitely want to keep in touch with them as your kid grows. Make sure you have one that's not expired and, and is up to date. And you really want to learn how to properly administer the EpiPen if needed. So make sure you ask your pediatrician or your pharmacist for some training in this. Because as you can imagine, if your child is having an anaphylactic reaction, and you're just trying to figure out these pens right there in that moment, it can be a little overwhelming and scary. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily, a lot of these pens will actually like walk you through the process. They're automated now. So one thing that I usually tell parents to do when I'm teaching them to administer the EpiPen is if they have a younger kid, have them sit on their lap um, and put one of their legs, wrap it ar- around over the top of their kid's legs And then wrap one of their arms in a big bear hug around the kid. And then with their free hand, you're going to, you know, take the cap off, follow the instructions, and jam the EpiPen into the lateral thigh of the child. And this can go through genes or other things. But you really want to practice it because your kid's panicking. They're having a reaction. You're panicking. um, And it can be such a life-saving treatment. So make sure you know how to use your EpiPen. Mm Mm-hmm. And then get that refilled, too, as you mentioned, because a lot of times what we find is that they're not used very often, and so they do often expire. And so we do want to make sure that they have active ingredients in them. Right. For mild reactions that don't require an EpiPen, we used to always tell families to give an antihistamine like diphenhydramine, but this recommendation has changed, hasn't it? Right. So diphenhydramine or Benadryl, as Mm -hmm. many families will know it, um, is like always the go-to, right? Like when people have hives. And I'm pretty anti-Benadryl these days. And a lot of people are moving towards that because it makes kids so sleepy Mm -hmm. and it's not very long lasting. So the new recommendation when your kid's having a mild allergy is to actually treat with an antihistamine like Zyrtec or Cetirizine is the generic name. And You can give this once or twice per day, check in with your pediatrician, but this would be your first line of defense for a mild allergy. Mm -hmm. And all kids should have an anaphylaxis action plan provided by their physician where they list their allergies, the symptoms that usually present with, and what medication to give, including when to administer their EpiPen. Right. And they should have one of these at, you know, grandparents' house, with the babysitter, at school. 
Mm-hmm. So that everybody that takes care of the child is aware. And we put a copy of the anaphylaxis action plan on the website for anyone who might be interested. Mm-hmm. What percentage of people will outgrow their allergies? So it's different depending on what the food is. So around 80% of people actually will outgrow a milk, egg, wheat, and soy allergy. So these are much more common in childhood. And only 20% of people will outgrow peanut, tree nut, fish, or shellfish. So it's not something you want to experiment with on mm-hmm. your own. You know, uh, my brother has a peanut allergy. And so, you know, sometimes he's like, I wonder if I'm still allergic. Like, um, and I'm like, don't just try and see. <laughs> uh-huh. um, you want to talk to your allergist if you have one um, or your primary care physician. They can track your testing over time. So either that blood test or the skin prick test to see if your levels are coming down. And once they're at an acceptable level, then you can do like an in-office challenge. Mm-hmm. And um, as you know, I'm often advocating for vaccines, and there's some misconceptions sometimes about allergies and vaccines. So I just want to make a quick plug that an egg allergy of any severity is not a contraindication to receiving your annual influenza vaccine, and it's also not a contraindication to receiving the measles, mumps, rubella, the MMR vaccine either. Yes, that's so true. My, I think I may have uh, mentioned this story in our influenza episode mm-hmm. once, but I was at a CVS like a year or two ago and they were asking me if I was allergic to egg before mm-hmm. I got uh, my flu shot. And I started lecturing this poor pharmacy tech <laughs> about how that's not actually a true contraindication anymore. And my husband was like, hiding. Like, why are you doing that? And I was like, why are they still asking people? <laughs> yeah, there was a there was a lag a lag between when that recommendation was made and like all those screening forms before they were updated. Yeah. Yes. So let's summarize today's topic. Food allergies are common with 4 to 8% of children experiencing a food allergy. And although food allergies are common, food intolerances are much more common and not associated with a true IgE-mediated reaction. If you have a suspicion for a food allergy, it is important to visit your healthcare provider and they will gather more information and may order testing for that specific food allergy. If you're diagnosed with a food allergy, the number one treatment is strict avoidance of the food, but antihistamines and epinephrine can sometimes be used if an exposure occurs. And all kids with severe food allergies should always, always carry an EpiPen and have an anaphylaxis action plan. Early introduction of allergenic foods such as peanut products can be helpful at preventing food allergies later in life, but you should always consult with your healthcare provider before starting this if your child has a history of eczema or egg allergy. We would like to thank Dr. Victoria Dimitriades, a pediatric allergist immunologist here at UC Davis Children's Hospital, for reviewing today's episode, although Dr. Dean and I take full responsibility for any errors or misinformation. So, of course, I've got a food allergy joke, right? (laughs) What is it? (laughs) Okay. Why did the chicken cross the road? Why? To avoid his allergen. That's not the best one. No, that's not the best. Do you one. have any food allergies, Doctor Dean? No, not as far as I know. I mean, I mean, I've got some things I don't like. <laughs> but, <laughs> you have intolerances, right? But I, but I don't think there's anything that I'm allergic to. I've never been worried about that. So I guess I've been lucky that way. What about you? 
I also don't have any true allergies. I've never been prescribed an EpiPen, but I have had certain foods where I get that itchy mouth. And so I'm mm-hmm. wondering if it's that food pollen syndrome because I do have n- pretty bad seasonal allergies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was something that I was like, hmm, like I have to pay attention to what specific foods do that for me. Um <laughs> just out of curiosity but yes very luckily no no significant allergies for me either that wraps up this episode of kids considered you can find more information on our website kidsconsidered.ucdavis.edu follow us on twitter at kids considered and instagram at kids considered if you have feedback on this show or topics you would like us to discuss in the future we would love to hear from you Please call us. Our number is 916-915-3388. Or email us at kidsconsidered at gmail.com. Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us for our next podcast. Kids Considered is sponsored by UC Davis Children's Hospital. 